Yeah, you can clap for Jeff. He doesn't hear you, but that's okay. Um, so, first of all, let me just make a couple little side comments here. Uh, to husbands, right? The scripture does not tell us to understand our wives. So that's good news, right? Does not tell us. To, it's, here's, it does say, live with your wife in an understanding way. That's an entirely different thing. But this mess is not on marriage today. You know what else it tells us? It tells us husbands to love our wives like Christ loves the church. <laughs> All the women said amen. That was awesome. Um, and we are going to get to that just in a few verses. And we're going to really start digging in in a few weeks to this whole issue of a husband and wife relationship, family relationships. What does that look like? As I told you, the book of Ephesians is extremely, extremely practical going to be getting down to brass tacks about how do we live together in families, how do we, how do we work together in communities and all of that kind of stuff. But I wanted to use this clip this morning, even though some of you have seen it before, just because it, it, it helps us to think about how frustrating it is when someone has an expectation of you and you don't know what it is. What, have you ever had like at work where you have a boss that is not clear about their expectations? And you, you always wonder, am I doing a good job? Am I getting this done? There's a project. You're not really sure what success looks like. Not really sure how to do that. Um, it's really, really difficult when you don't understand how to please the one that you're trying to please. And what we have to understand as we continue in our study of the book of Ephesians is you'll remember if you were here several months ago when we began this study that um, the, the church at Ephesus, to whom this letter was originally written, is in the midst of an absolutely paganistic society. So paganism reigns for them. There are, there are hundreds if not thousands of gods that are worshipped in their culture. And the problem with paganism, well, there are many problems with paganism, but a problem with paganism is that you're always trying to appease these various gods, but you never know what it's going to take to please them. And so you, you have to just look at circumstances and make a guess. Hey, there hasn't been any rain for a while. We must have made the rain god angry. And so what are we going to do now to make the rain god happy? Maybe we do a rain dance. Or maybe we sacrifice something. We don't know what to do. And, and there are all of these various gods. And if you make one of the gods happy, you might make one of the other ones angry. And then gods have moods. And so maybe one day this is what makes this god happy. But another day it doesn't make that god happy. And that's what paganism is like. And for those of us who grew up in Western culture, apart from paganistic influence, or at least that kind of paganistic influence, it's hard for us to understand what that's like. Because the one true God, he speaks very clearly to us about what he wants. It's very clear to anyone who reads the Bible what it is that it takes to please God. And so what we're going to be doing today is as we get in uh, further into Ephesians chapter 5, you brought a Bible, now's the time to open it, Ephesians chapter 5, New Testament right after Galatians and before Philippians, and go to Ephesians 5, and we're going to pick up the letter in verse 17. And remember, Paul is writing to the Ephesian church 2,000 years ago, and it was, this letter was meant to be distributed among all of the churches at that time and continue to be distributed among all of the churches for all time. That's why we have it here today. It's not just written to the Ephesian church, but it's written to the church called Grace Fellowship in the city of Duarte in 2016. It's every bit as relevant today as it was then. And here's what he says, beginning in verse 17. So then, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. There it is. 
we get to understand what the will of the Lord is. Is that good news? We're not, we're not left wondering. We're not going to be left in the dark. There are many passages in Scripture that are so direct and so blunt that they say in these words, this is the will of God, and then tell you to do something. So it's very, very clear to anyone who takes the time to pay attention to what God's Word says, what His will is. And we saw last week in verse 15 that God expects us to walk wisely and not foolishly. And now he's going to start describing that kind of life in practical terms. Now, um, my, my daughter was in the hospital this week, so I spent a lot of time just in those extremely comfortable chairs that they put in hospital rooms and watching the game show network. So, you know, I had no idea how much I was missing with daytime television. It's really fabulous stuff. We're watching the Game Show Network. We're watching some ancient version of Family Feud. And, and here was the question. The question was, we polled 100 men and asked them, what day of the year is their favorite day? What do you think was the number one? 70 guys said the same thing. <laughs> that was the second one. Super Bowl was second. The first one was my birthday. Because men are into themselves. My birthday, when they bring me cake and they bring me presents and everybody, that's everybody's favorite day, my birthday. My birthday has never been my favorite day. And as I get older, I'm almost as old as Ricky now. So as I get older, um, my birthday is even less exciting for me. But my favorite, my favorite day of the year has always been the same. It's Easter. On Easter Sunday, I say this every year, this is my favorite day. And because obviously the Lord rose, if he had not risen, we would be still lost in our trespasses and sins. We would be hopeless. We would be of all men, the scripture says, most to be pitied. So when I think of Easter now, I just get all excited. Easter is the big day for me. But the funny thing is, even before I knew the Lord, Easter was a huge day for me. Because when I was a kid, Easter was like Halloween in the spring. It was all about candy and bunnies and eggs. And, but those of you who are like young enough to be in this young adult ministry won't understand this. But if you're old like me, you will remember this. Back in the day, your parents did not hide little plastic eggs that were stuffed full of candy for you to hide, for you to find. They hid hard-boiled eggs, right? That's what we went looking for, hard-boiled eggs. We colored them a couple of nights before. Mom had boiled them up, and then they were hidden throughout the house. And it was, I was always excited. Easter morning was like Christmas morning to me. I couldn't wait to wake up because the competition was on. And I am convinced to this day that my brother got up in the middle of the night, cheated, and made a map, and that's how come he sometimes won. But... It was always a competition who could get the... We weren't going to eat these eggs. We didn't care less about these eggs. It was about winning in the name of Jesus. And so that's, that's what it was about for us, right? The funny thing is, you could always tell whether mom had hidden the eggs or dad had hidden the eggs. Because when mom hides the eggs, they're in places like the middle of the coffee table or on the couch, that's where mom hides eggs, and then mom sits, and she even goes like this. Hey, there's one more in there, right? Because mom wants you to succeed. It brings her joy to watch you succeed. Dad doesn't think of it that way. To dad, this is a competition, him against you. 
So he's hiding those eggs so they will not be found. And every year there would always be, out of the two dozen eggs that were hidden, at least two or three that were never found. He would hide them in chandeliers. He'd put them in the tailpipe of the car. You know, any place like that, there would always be eggs that were not found, at least for a couple weeks, right? <laughs> After a while, there's a way to find them. But, but you could always tell my dad would hide them in such a way that you couldn't find them. And I, I tell that story because I want you to understand, there's a lot of us that think that God's will is like some hidden treasure that God takes great pleasure in putting it in some place that is so difficult for us to get to that we have to climb a bunch of ladders and go through a bunch of hoops and do a bunch of religious exercises in order to figure out his will and that somehow he sits up in heaven just laughing as we wander around trying to find his will. Guys, that is not the God of the Bible. He wants us to be successful. He takes great joy in our success. He loves for us to have the abundant life that Jesus died to give us, and it breaks his heart when we are wandering around trying to find something other than his will to fulfill us, because he knows where that's going to lead. Our God is hiding nothing when it comes to his will. He actually wants us to succeed. So Paul comes right out and tells us in Ephesians 5 what God's will is for our lives. And by the way, this is one of many places where God specifically lays out his will. I just wrote down real quick a few examples, put them up on the screen, uh, of places where God says, this is my will. It is God's will for people to come into a saving relationship with Jesus Christ, period. You ever wonder about that? Don't wonder. 1 Timothy 2, 3, and 4, it's God's will that people will be saved. God does not rejoice in sending people to damnation. God rejoices in saving people. Another example, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 3, says, this is the will of God, that you abstain from sexual immorality. Our sexual purity is God's will, and he is so serious about it that he comes right out and tells us, in case anybody's wondering, this is my will. It tells us in 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 13 to 15, that God's will is for us to submit to those in authority in our lives. And none of us like that. We're not into submission. And yet God says, if you're going to have the abundant life, you're going to have to learn to submit. And we're going to talk more about that in the weeks that are ahead. It's God's will. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 18, that we give thanks in all circumstances. Give thanks in all circumstances. And that is a difficult, difficult thing to do, but God calls us to do that. We're going to talk more about that in a few minutes as well. Um, it's God's will. Micah chapter 6, verse 8. I love this verse. He has told you, O man, what is good and what does the Lord require of you, but to do justice and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. Justice, mercy, humility. You want to know what God wants from you? That's what it is. He's told you. He's not hiding. Now look at Ephesians chapter 5, back to verse 17 again, and let's get this whole section in context. So then do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Good news, he's going to tell us his will. Do not get drunk with wine, for that is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody with your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks for all things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ to God, even the Father. One of the great things about 
teaching verse by verse through a book of the Bible is that we're always getting everything in context. If you remember, in this context, of the, just a few verses above this, he's been doing this thing where he's, he's giving us contrasts. He's contrasting things like light and darkness. And he's saying we're of the light and not of the darkness. He's contrasting truth with lies. He's contrasting those who are awake with those who are asleep. And he's using this... Um, method to help us to see these big truths that he's trying to teach. And he's going to continue doing that comparison contrast thing here in verse 18. Now, listen, there's a lot of ways you can divide up people. But one of the ways we could divide up people is we could say there are two types of people in this room. There are those who have been drunk, and there are those who haven't. Now, I could just like have you all the drunk people move to this side of the room or something, but I'm not going to do that. Um, Here's the deal. If you have never been drunk, then you've probably been around someone who was drunk. You have a sense of what that's about. Um, and then if you've ever been drunk, you also, well, you may not remember exactly what that was like, but you know something that that was like. What happens when you get drunk, and he's getting, he's getting into this, do not get drunk with wine thing. And what happens when you get drunk is that you drink so much, or it doesn't have to be drinking. You know, it says, do not get drunk with wine. And some of you are like, cool, I don't like wine anyway. Tequila, it is, right? That's not what he's saying. He's, he's saying, don't get intoxicated, right? Don't get intoxicated. So it might be something you drink, something you smoke, something you shoot in your arm, whatever it is. If it is intoxicating you, he's saying, do not get intoxicated. Now, the reason he's saying that is because when you're intoxicated, it is no longer you who are in control of yourself, right? Do people do stupid things when they're drunk? Yeah, some of us have scars to prove it, right? And, 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 and people do not, when they're sober, put a lampshade on their head and dance on the table at their boss's house. But when they're drunk, it's amazing what they do because there's this there's this aspect to alcohol where, in a sense, the alcohol takes control of your behavior, right? And you find yourself doing things that you would not otherwise do. And I always laugh when people go, well, I like to get a little buzzed because, you know, then it loosens me up and I get to have some fun. Really? Because what you're doing is you're putting yourself in a position where you're doing things that you would not do if you were thinking straight, things that you will regret in the morning, right? Right? And, and yet, people do it. It's a great analogy. That's why he's using it here. I don't think his point here is to go off on a teaching about drinking, although the scripture does teach about that. And I, I, I want to be careful about this. I don't want to be remiss and just pass that by. He, he tells us not to get drunk, not to get intoxicated. Nowhere in scripture, regardless of what you may have heard, read, or whatever, nowhere in scripture are we commanded as Christians to completely abstain from alcohol? Alcohol is allowed for Christians. Drunkenness is never allowed. So you can use your own wisdom and, and, and apply the principle, however it is that God has called you to apply it. But if it affects the way you feel, you're drunk. Okay? So just think about that as you make decisions about how you're going to use alcohol or any other kind of substance. Just remember that the Lord forbids us to be intoxicated. Okay, fair enough. 
But he's not so much telling us that so we can get into the subject of alcohol and drunkenness. If that were the case, I would look up a bunch of other passages and go into a study on what are the ground rules we should follow when it comes to using alcohol as, ch as children of God. That's not the point here. He's using it as an analogy. He's saying, take this, this thing that most of us know something about, either through personal experience or through someone else's experience, and he's saying, to be filled with the Spirit is like being drunk with wine in the sense that it is no longer you who are in control of yourself. And, and, and people go, well, what does it mean to be filled with the Spirit? And there's all kinds of answers out there, depending on which Christian you ask. What does it mean to be filled with the Spirit? And by the way, as we get into talking today about the Holy Spirit, let me just say that, you know, the Scripture talks about the Holy Spirit and gives us some clear truth about the Holy Spirit, but, but not much. We don't get a lot of details about the Holy Spirit. We get us some general things about who the Holy Spirit is and what He does, but we don't get into a ton of details. And so because of that, we, because of our nature, tend to make stuff up. And when we don't understand something, we just make up something. And so there's a whole lot of controversy about the Holy Spirit. And frankly, most of it is not about the stuff that's in the Scripture. It's about people's own views that are extra biblical. And, and where, where the Scripture is silent on something, I'm not going to put my foot down and say it's only this way and never that way. We're going to take what the Scripture teaches. So there's a lot of confusion about this issue of being filled with the Spirit. But scripturally, to be filled with the Spirit is not confusing at all. He's using the analogy right here to help us understand. To be filled with the Spirit is to be under the control of the Spirit. That's what he's saying. Do not be drunk with wine under the control of an intoxicating substance, but be filled with the Spirit under the control of the Spirit of God. How is it that we as children of God are to live? We're to live under the control of the Spirit. When you're filled with the Spirit, God's driving the car. And just like when you drink too much, what you've done is relinquished control of your behavior to the alcohol. In the same sense, when you're filled with the Holy Spirit, you have relinquished the control of your life to God. It's about Jesus being Lord. It's about the Spirit being in control of the way that you live. And that makes everybody a little bit uncomfortable because nobody likes to be out of control. We know this because we all know this, some of you, if you're a driver, you know this experience. Have you ever been um, a passenger in a car, like on a windy mountain road? It's awful, isn't it? It's terrible when you're the passenger. I'm putting my foot through the thing like this, and you know, the driver's just like, no problem. But the passenger's freaking out, right? Um, at least that's what my wife would tell you. And... But when you're driving, it's a different deal, right? When you're the one driving, the thing that's bothering you is the passenger going like this, right? But other than that, you get it. You could feel the car. You know how much control you have. Well, we don't like to be the passenger. It's scary. It's scary to relinquish control in your own life and to say, hey, I'm going to let anybody else make any of my decisions for me. And this is one of the reasons we really have to understand God for who He is. 
Because there are things God tells us. I just went through a list of things that says this is God's will, this is God's will. And some of those things we go, yeah, I don't get that. Why, does he, why is he trying to keep me down? Why is he trying to hold me back? Why doesn't God just let me live my life the way I want to live my life? It's not because he's trying to hold you back. It's because he's trying to set you free. And to experience life to the fullest, and he knows how that works. And he says, if you will give control of your life over to me, I promise you it will work out much better than if you try to drive this thing yourself. And so to be filled with the Holy Spirit is to let God take the steering wheel, so to speak. When you're under the control of the Spirit, it shows up. Have you ever walked into an event, a wedding reception or party or something like that? You walk in a little bit late, the party's always already going on, and you see somebody who's already drunk? How do you know? How can you tell? Because they're acting a fool, right? That's how you can tell. It's obvious when a person is drunk. They're behaving in, in erratic ways. You could tell by what's coming out of their mouth. You could tell by all kinds of signs this person has had too much to drink. Well, by the same token, when a person is filled with the Spirit of God, you could tell. It, it shows up. It finds its way out in our behavior when we're filled with the Holy Spirit. For example, verse 19 tells us that our words are affected. Look at verse 19. Speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody with your heart to the Lord. Now, just like I said, if I was, if I was teaching today on alcohol use, we'd be looking up a bunch of passages. I am so tempted to just focus on this verse and teach a little bit about the, the role of music in the life of a Christian and I would love for us to do like a whole seminar on that, but that's not where I'm going with this today. I will say this. Um, it is really important for us to understand as Christians that when we are filled with the Holy Spirit, for reasons I do not understand and cannot explain, when we're filled with the Holy Spirit, one of the signs has to do with music. The music is fitting for the people of God. So, we come together on Sunday mornings. Listen, we could just stand up and we could just recite the words to the songs that we're singing, but there would be something missing. All the words are there, but there'd be something missing. There's something about the way God has designed us that we relate to him well in music. We were designed to be musical. And that's why 98% of people love music. It's very rare that you find a person who doesn't listen to music, doesn't like music, can't relate to music. But even if you're a person, if you're a Christian today, even if you're a person who doesn't like music, can't really sing well, doesn't play an instrument, doesn't understand music theory or any of that kind of stuff, doesn't have any favorite bands that you listen to, you're just not a music person. I'm here to tell you that God has designed you to sing. And I know some of you are going to amen, and others of you are like, what a stupid thought that is. That is just not me. I'm just not wired for that. And I'm telling you that if, if, if it's difficult for you to connect with God in song, work at it because it's worth it. There is a way of connecting with God in song that doesn't happen in any other way. And... Interestingly enough, this passage is not even so much about connecting with God in song as it is connecting with each other in song, singing to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. 
I don't know if you ever think about that. I'm always emphasizing this, and I know Ricky is too, that when we come together on Sunday mornings or any time to sing songs to God, we're the choir, God's the audience, right? That's the idea. That being said, it is also true that we are singing to one another. We are teaching one another the gospel in song. How many of you know that uh, when you learn something in song, it sticks in your head, right? <laughs> right? You turn on the oldie station, you haven't heard the song in 40 years, and you sing right along with it, right? You know every word. It's in your head. It's filed in there. There's something about music. Well, we are teaching one another the gospel when we sing these songs, which is why, by the way, I'll give you an example. Just this week, we introduced a new song this week, remember? I hope you liked it. I think it was great. Um, but before we introduced it, Ricky and I sat down at his computer with his, he's got like a sound system in his office, like whatever. Anyway, he, he says he needs it for his job. I don't know. Anyway, and, and we're watching this song on the computer and listening to it, and, and we're just going through the lyrics line by line, and we're evaluating together the lyrics of this song and going, does this match with Scripture? Is this true? Do we even want to sing this? Who cares if it's catchy? Who cares if it's fun? Who cares if we like the music? Is what we're saying accurate? And there's a reason for that. We try really hard not to introduce songs here that are just silly fluff that make people feel good but don't really say anything. It's amazing to me how many popular Christian worship songs not only don't say anything, but they say something and it's wrong. Like the, the amount of heresy that is sung every Sunday morning is kind of ridiculous. So we try to be as careful as we can about choosing songs that match with Scripture. Why? Because when we sing, we are singing to one another as well as singing to God. This truth is coming forth in song. My point is this. When you're filled with the Spirit, what comes out of your mouth is affected. It is spiritual truth. To songs and hymns and spiritual songs, spiritual truth comes out of the mouth of a person who's filled with the Holy Spirit. Another thing it affects is your attitude. If you look at verse 20... Always giving thanks for all things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ to God, even the Father. The verse we read earlier said giving, giving thanks in all circumstances. This says giving thanks for all things. So it's not just, I know this stinks, but thanks, Lord, that, you know, I'm not also, you know, um, starving. That's not what he's saying. He's saying in every circumstance and for for every circumstance, we are to give thanks. Now, is that easy? No. That is supernatural. But I got to tell you something. Whatever can be taken away from you, there's one thing that can't. That is the right to choose your attitude. And if you are filled with the Holy Spirit, you have the option of being filled with hope even when your circumstances are difficult. You have the option of being optimistic even when your circumstances are difficult. You have the option of being joyful even when your circumstances are difficult. And oftentimes, the light shines so much brighter out of the life of a person who chooses the right attitude even in difficult circumstances. You know, a lot of you have been praying this week. Thank you so much. My daughter, Kimmy, had to go through another major surgery this week and you know, this poor girl has just been going through it for years now. She has been sick and having surgeries and all this kind of stuff. 
And we finally thought she was over the hump. She's been like a year without symptoms. And all of a sudden, everything went south again. And the apparatus in her body failed. And they had to go back in and do another surgery and redo everything. And, and so she's today sitting home on narcotics, trying to fight the pain and do all that kind of stuff. She's now home from the hospital. Thank you for praying for her. She's doing good. My point is this. As a parent... I would have done anything to protect her from all the difficulty that she has gone through with her physical issues these last several years. And yet, she will be the first to tell you that she has grown so much in her walk with Jesus because of her difficulties. And she has grown so much as a human being just in her general maturity because of her difficulty. Not in spite of her difficulty, because of her difficulty. And she always tells people when they say, listen, you know, you're going to get healed because we know that God wants you healed. She goes, I don't know that God wants me healed. This might be the best thing for me to glorify God. Here's my point. If you can choose your attitude, you can glorify God in all circumstances, in all situations. It is something to be thankful for if you are suffering. It's not enjoyable. I'm not saying it's fun. I'm not trying to be trite. But it is something to be thankful for. So not only can we say, Lord, while we're dealing with the flu, Lord, thank you that even though I'm sick, you know, I, I haven't died. We could say, Lord, thank you for this flu. And whatever it is, you're going to use this flu to do in my life. Because he uses difficulty to help us grow. So we get to choose our attitude. It says here, Always giving thanks for all things. Thankfulness is your choice. You can always be thankful. Paul and Cyrus, Silas were beaten within an inch of their life, cuffed and chained up, put in stocks and thrown in a dungeon. And what did they do there? They sang praises to God. And out of that, the Philippian church was born. Even Jesus himself, on the most difficult night of his life, when he was about to go to the cross... Knowing what was ahead of him, he, what was ahead of him was such a heavy burden to bear that the Bible tells us he sweat great drops of blood. What did he do on that night with his disciples? It says he broke bread and gave thanks. He gave thanks. He was thankful while he was facing the impending wrath of God that was about to be poured out upon him. You think of people like Martin Luther King Jr., or also you think of uh, Nelson Mandela, guy, people who, who, who fought against oppression and stood against oppression and decided to do it the right way and try to honor God in the process and all of that kind of stuff, and they forgave those who oppressed them. And in so doing, they set an example that, quite frankly, changed the world. We could use a whole lot more of that in our current tensions that are going on in our culture today. See, think if you want to go back a long ways, think of Job. Job had a monumentally bad week. Would you agree? He lost everything but God. And what did he pray? He said, even though he slay me, yet will I praise him. Guys, don't let the enemy tell you that you have to be depressed that you have to be discouraged, that you have to be hopeless, because that is not true of a person who's filled with the Holy Spirit. It can be difficult, but you can 
Choose your attitude. When a, when a Christian is filled with the Spirit, everything changes. Now, if you've been a follower of Jesus for just a short time, then probably the subject of the Holy Spirit is very confusing to you. But if you've been a follower of Jesus for decades, probably the subject of the Holy Spirit is very confusing to you. <laughs> and that really goes back to what I was saying earlier about the Scripture tells us about the Holy Spirit, but it doesn't tell us nearly as much as we want to know. It doesn't give us all of the answers. But, but I do want to take some time today to just sort of unpack this idea of who the Holy Spirit is. First of all, we know this. There are three persons of the Godhead. One God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Does that make sense to you? Nope, doesn't make sense to me. One God, three persons, I don't really know what that means. I don't claim to understand, but I know it's true. And it's okay, because God is uniquely other. He's not like anyone or anything that we have experience with. And so there's a point in which you run out of analogies and every analogy falls short. There's no way to accurately describe God using just the things that we know. And so there are just some things we don't know. But the Holy Spirit is God. This is so important for us to understand. The Holy Spirit is a person. The Holy Spirit is not a power. Sometimes we think about the Holy Spirit wrong. We talk about the power of the Holy Spirit. We're going to do something in the power of the Holy Spirit. And we think of the Holy Spirit as sort of this um, esoteric, um, you know, um, non-personal power that we exercise. The Holy Spirit, to some people, is a tool for us to use. But that is not what the Bible says about the Holy Spirit. The Bible says the Holy Spirit is God. He's a person. He's not an it, he's a he. And we are tools for him to use. We need to get this straight. So we need to first understand the Holy Spirit is a person. The second is that the Holy Spirit is God. He's not just sent by God. He's not just the power of God. He is God. The third thing I want us to see is that the, person of the, the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit, provides all spiritual knowledge and power. There is no spiritual knowledge or power apart from the Holy Spirit. This is important for us to understand because it doesn't matter who we're talking about and what time. The Holy Spirit is the one who provides all spiritual knowledge and all spiritual power. Even Jesus didn't do any ministry until the time of his baptism. And what happened at his baptism? The Holy Spirit descended upon him like a dove, a sign of the Holy Spirit's empowerment. And then the Holy Spirit at that moment led him off into the wilderness to be tempted. The Holy Spirit protected him and guided him and, and helped him through his temptation. It was the Holy Spirit. It was by the power of the Holy Spirit that Jesus spoke to the ocean and made it calm. It was by the power of the Holy Spirit that Jesus spoke to demons and cast them out. It was by the power of the Holy Spirit that Jesus spoke to dead people and raised them up. The Holy Spirit is the source of all spiritual knowledge and all spiritual power. You think of the prophets back in the time of 1 and 2 Kings, Elijah and Elisha. In many ways, both of them are so much like Jesus in terms of what they did. Elijah and Elisha, if you go back and read 1 and 2 Kings, you will find that they raised the dead, they multiplied food, they knew the thoughts of people, they called down fire from heaven, they controlled the weather, and they spoke and understood the very words of God. Now, that's just like Jesus, isn't it? So where did they get that power? They weren't Jesus. The Holy Spirit. 
You go, no, 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 pastor. The Holy Spirit shows up in the New Testament. Acts chapter 2, day of Pentecost, tongues of fire, the whole thing, Holy Spirit. Before that, the Holy Spirit wasn't active. Really? Have you read the Old Testament? Because, because all power and all spiritual knowledge comes from the Holy Spirit. He is God. He always has been God. He was never born. He, was never, he never didn't exist. He has always been God. Same Holy Spirit. The big difference between the Holy Spirit's activity in the Old Testament and his activity in the New Testament is that in the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit was, uh, was given and taken and given and taken, sort of like an anointing. He came and went, came and went, came and went. But in the New Testament, since the time of Pentecost in the church, when a person receives Jesus Christ, they receive the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit indwells every believer. He doesn't come and go. He never leaves us or forsakes us. Even the Bible, you talk about power and spiritual knowledge. The Bible was written by who? The Holy Spirit. And who is it that has to enlighten us if we're going to understand the truth of the Scripture? The Holy Spirit. You can't do without it. In fact, in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, we won't take the time to turn there because you guys aren't listening fast enough today, but in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, it talks about that famous passage about how the things of God are not understood by people who don't have the Spirit because these things are spiritually appraised. And it really helps you to understand why a person who doesn't know Jesus is struggling to find any kind of meaning in life or any kind of truth. And even when they read the Bible, they go, man, I don't know. This is a weird book. It doesn't make a lot of sense to me. But when you have the Holy Spirit, he enlightens you, and you can understand spiritual truth. So the Holy Spirit is God. and He's the source of all spiritual knowledge and all spiritual power. And we're to be filled with the Holy Spirit. Let me put this as simply as possible. Every follower of Jesus is indwelled by the Holy Spirit at the moment of salvation, and the Spirit never leaves us. That's what we know for sure from the Scripture about this. You don't have to jump through some spiritual hoops to get the Holy Spirit. You don't have to wait until some later date and hope the Holy Spirit picks you out and likes you enough to come into your life. If you are a follower of Jesus, you have the Holy Spirit. And if you have not yet crossed that line from one who is considering Jesus to one who is actually submitting his life to Jesus, you don't have the Holy Spirit. It's as simple as that. But the Holy Spirit indwells every believer. But then why does he tell us to be filled with the Holy Spirit? There's a difference between being filled with the Holy Spirit and just being indwelt with the Holy Spirit. And if you have been a Christian for any length of time, you know the difference from experience. As we, if, if the idea of being filled with the Holy Spirit is to be under the control of the Holy Spirit, when we put ourselves under the control of anyone or anything other than the Holy Spirit, then we, we um, diminish the Spirit's activity in our lives. It, it comes down to that word that none of us likes, submission. See, we have to actually submit to God and let him take the wheel. But the problem is a whole lot of us, we sort of do this thing with God. We go, um, okay, okay, you drive, and then we grab the wheel. Okay, you drive, and then we grab the wheel. Man, that's less safe than just driving yourself. And And... This issue of submission means that I, I willingly place myself 
under the authority of God so that I will do what he wants rather than what I want. So instead of getting all crazy about this sort of esoteric idea of what does it mean to be filled with the Holy Spirit, how about this? To be completely submitted to the Holy Spirit and under his control is to be filled with the Holy Spirit. And he manifests himself however he wants to manifest himself. He's God. And, and a lot of times he manifests himself subtly by, by inner promptings in our hearts or by comforting someone who is hurting or giving peace where there's been a lack of peace. Nobody else even sees that. It's just very subtle, most of the work of the Holy Spirit. But then there are other times when the Holy Spirit does something and he manifests himself in some spectacular way. And you see somebody who's, who's got cancer get healed of cancer miraculously when people pray. You go, wow, that's incredible, the power of the Holy Spirit. Listen, both are equally the work of the Holy Spirit. So rather than us trying to set up a bunch of um, scenarios and go, this is what the Holy Spirit is going to do for us, how about if we remember that he is not a power that we control, we are his servants who he controls. And we let him do what he's going to do. We need to be filled with the Spirit, but if we're going to be filled, we're going to have to submit. Literally, the Greek translation, if we translate it like word for word from Greek to English there where it says be filled with the Holy Spirit, what it literally says is keep on continually allowing yourself to be filled with the Spirit. It's not something you do. It's a position you put yourself in. And you do that through submission and obedience. It's not that complicated. Not that confusing. What is God doing? He is trying to take over our lives. He's not coming to visit. He's, he's not coming to just teach us a couple of things. He's coming to take over our lives. That's what he wants, because that's what we need. And it comes down to this. Am I going to stand for myself, fight my own fight, or am I going to submit to the Holy Spirit, let him fill me, and then watch as he gives me the abundant life that he swore to give us? It comes down to submission, my friends. It's not about some chant you do or some verse you memorize or some frenzy that you whip yourself into. It comes down to this question. Are you going to let him be Lord of your life or are you going to be Lord of your life and let something else rule your day? I want to just ask you to do this as we close. I know I've gone a little bit over today and you guys have been patient. So I just want to close this way. I want to invite you to please just bow your heads where you're at. Close your eyes. Just take a minute because I really feel like if we, if we learn some lessons today about the Holy Spirit but we never move into that actual submission... It's probably a waste of time. See, as your head is bowed and you just listen to the sound of my voice, I want you to think about some areas of your life where maybe you've been fighting an uphill battle. You're trying to win some battle. You're trying to accomplish something. You're trying to find some fulfillment. You're trying to define yourself in some way. And you're finding that in your own strength, you're not able to do it. And based on the scripture, I have a word from God for you today. Cease striving and know that I am God.